Hey everyone, Coach Steve here, coming to you from Berthoud, Colorado, north of Denver. This is podcast episode number three, and I believe we've been joined by B.O.B. Indeed. How am I doing? How's my volume? Loud and clear. How about yes. how about me? You're a little loud, now you're clear. All right, fantastic. <laughs> uh, where where it is today, find Coach Bob. Uh, trapping cabin, icy. Had to had to use the ice skates to get around the neighborhood. <laughs> Plenty of food on the table, though. Oh yeah, we got good food. Good catch overnight. Fires fired up. Oh yeah. <laughs> so today, today I did a quick hit on, you know, making shots and consistency. What some coaches call shot tolerance. And today we're going to talk about if if that's the case that making shots will beat ninety percent of the kids in Colorado out there and is a pretty good way to play tennis. Well, then what is it that coaches talk about? What is the next level in the game and where can a player go from there? Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. So we're going to look at these five tactical areas of tennis. Um, and I want to take this in a couple different directions. You know, number one is, you know, these are the things that you and I believe are great things to talk about for a coach. If a kid has learned to have some level of consistency and make shots. So we want to go to this in this direction because this is kind of the next thing and becoming more of a complete player. Um, but also touch a little bit on, you know, this idea that, you know, a coach should fix a shot or, a, you know, a, a kid that this is a daily thing, right? They come up to me and they say, why did I miss that one? Or can you fix my backhand? And, you know, without diving too much into that, you and I just both think there's maybe something better we can spend our time with on the court, huh? Well, yeah. Well, especially in, in a group uh, lesson situation, you know, you can get into the issues of technique and better or worse ways of doing things. But when you're dealing with something like, you know, in the FRA, when all the kids are there, it's pretty difficult and probably unwise to go down a path like that with all these kids. So one of the things about these five tactical areas that I think you mention all the time with your kids is it's a, it's a good way to structure practice, a way to make sure that you're touching on all of, all the elements that, that are useful to become a good tennis player. And then I would also say that within any technical thing you're going to go to, I think it's, that was part of the game-based approach is that you want to ground that in some sort of tactic. You know, what is it that this technique is trying to achieve? And then from there, you can work on the technique. But to try to just think, well, you know, I need to swing a certain way for its own sake. That's that's not going to get you very far because that's not the intention. That's not the goal. The goal is to achieve something in a tennis match with the technique. So that's, you know, the five tactical areas that we're going to talk about is a good framework for understanding that and then moving into technique as necessary in, a, in probably in a private setting mostly. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive right in. Um, so I'll read them off and then we'll take a closer look at each one. So the five tactical areas of tennis, number one, first strike, number two point building. You and I have also called that neutral rally before. All right. We'll talk about that. Number three, yep. capitalizing and attacking. You and I have also called that offense. Number four, finishing or finishing shot. And number five, defense. So, and we talked in podcast number one about the game-based approach, how a lot of what we do in the FRA hits on these. And so we're doing hopefully something right in that sense. We try to structure drills and games and activities on the court to simulate this you know, culminating in practice tie breaks and practice sets and match play. Um, but let's 
first strike. So this is, this is a key one, you know, first strike. Um, we're going to call this, you know, hitting the first serve and the return of the second serve offensively to force a weak reply. It's your, it's your first chance to hurt the other person, isn't it? Yep. Yep. You come right out of the blocks the best, you know, and this is only going to apply to, you know, reasonably skilled players, you know, like you said, in your quick hit, um, reducing your errors, not making mistakes is the, is probably the first thing you need to do. But if that, if that's not good enough, then you got to say, all right, well, how can I win points? And for the, for the skilled player, you're, you're holding the ball and you're starting the point off. And if you can pound a ball that flat out wins the point right off the bat or hurts the opponent and elicits a weak response, you want to do that as best you can. And then when you flip it, when you're the returner, oftentimes, you know, against a pretty skilled opponent, that second serve is going to be maybe the only short attackable ball you're going to get. You know, by rule, it has to land in that service box 21 feet from the net or less. And if, uh, if they don't have a great second serve, that might be your your best only good opportunity to hurt them so you want to be you want to practice those things yep yeah we a lot of our top kids are in the habit of um if they win the spin before a match they choose to return right and, you know and, and you're hoping that if there's a little bit of rust or the other kid is missing you know maybe you get a break you if you attack some second serve returns and you take some chances and you get a break and then you hold it while you're a little bit more in the flow of the match you're up two zero and, you know, the only time I don't like that is if you're facing a huge server, maybe I don't want to get the other person confident bombing first serves, you know, and they hold it love and then I'm up to bat. But even still, if I take care of my business, it's it's one one, you know, better skilled players are going to hold serve more often. And that idea that I can try to start off with a break and then hold for two zero, that's a good start going to six. Yeah, I, I I think it's worth pointing out too that for the vast majority of recreational tennis players and and junior tennis players, probably all junior tennis players up through about the fourteen and unders anyway, the serve is a not an advantage, it's right? A disadvantage, and I, I I get a kick out of you know parents and coaches saying, oh my my child is up a break, you know, I'm like, <laughs> that means they're they're down a hold or something, you know, I mean, I I. I don't know that being up a break is necessarily an advantage. That's normal because, yeah. I mean, I like to point out to people, listen, you, you never double fault when you're returning serve. And for the vast majority of our kids, you're going to see more double faults than you're going to see service winners. So this, this developing that first strike capability with the serve, it's a high order skill, you know, and you want to get there eventually, but it takes a long time. You know, the rule is you got to get it over the net and in that box. And if you fail, you lose. And that's, that's hard. Yeah. So, I mean, in your opponent, like I said, with the second serve, your opponent knows where the ball's coming by rule. You got to get it in that box. And unless you're athletic and tall and can pound it hard and hit it near the sidelines, the serve is a significant disadvantage in tennis. And I think most people need to understand that. Now, obviously, you know, in the FRA and in higher level training, you're going to try to develop that over the years so that that does become a weapon because when you watch TV or watch, higher level college tennis or some of the better juniors, absolutely the serve is a weapon. Yeah. You, you got to realize that for most people, it's a, it's a weapon, but it's aimed at you. It's not aimed at your opponent. Yeah. Even when I was playing a lot in my prime, it was never a great weapon for me, but I had one right. fun match. I was in a, this is doubles where there's more holds in theory, but I was playing the finals of the Broomfield open and we had a bunch of people there. Super fun. We were playing, uh, another pro and a, two pros actually on the other side of the net. My partner was a former D1 player and 
we literally went to seven, six, six, seven, five, seven in just an unbelievable match. And there was, as I recall, one break in the whole match and it was my serve <laughs> at five all in the third and we lost, but, but still that all those games and every single time we held, but that's a little bit higher level tennis and it's double. Yep. So, and you know, and what I, when I lose my serve in doubles, I blame my partner. Blame right. My yeah, exactly. that guy should have and I'll say one thing about how to, you know, how to use your, your serve as a weapon. You know, if you're, you know, neither of us are, you know, six foot five and can pound serves and, you and I haven't played against each other very much, and you probably don't even remember this, but you came out to one of our clubs at one point years ago, and we played some tiebreakers with a friend of ours. And and your serve, you know, not to insult you, Steve, but as you said, it's not a it's not a bomb, right. but you did a pretty good job of hitting a lot of body serves. That okay. was my memory of your serve was huh. that hey, this serve's not that great, but I'm not getting clean looks to hurt this guy. Uh, and I'm wondering why not. It's because you're hitting ball right at me a lot. Right. And that's something that, you know, they, they always say on TV, oh, we need to see more body serves and the, the pros don't do it. Well, there's a reason the pros don't do it, because they can hit the corners and get free points. Yeah. You know, when you aim it at somebody's body, you're probably not getting a free point. But, you know, guys like you and me, we're not getting free points anyway. Right. And so by aiming it at the guy, you're in the middle of the box, guy or gal, obviously, you're in the middle of the box. It's a safer serve. And it's hard to get out of the way of it to get a clean swing at it. So that's a way that you can get a first strike where you're going to get a weaker reply than you might otherwise have gotten from a 95 or 100 mile an hour serve instead of 120 mile an hour serve that's aimed at the corners. Yeah. So there's think, lots of different ways to get it done. Yeah. And so many kids are trying to hit topspin and kick serves on the second serve. And they're taught that, which is great. I always tell the kids, there's a reason we have topspin on the forehand and backhand it, you know, the boundary layer of air is created over the ball, brings the ball down in the box. So that's a safe serve because we have net clearance and range of depth. But there is a drawback to that, especially a kid that's trying to hit a kick serve that doesn't really kick at all. Right. And, and that is that it sits up, sits up in that yep. shoulder level strike zone yep. where a returner can hit that flat forehand. And, and that's what we're talking about with first strike is, it, you know, either hitting a big first serve or attacking that second serve, which oftentimes right. is sitting up there on a yep. tee around the yep. shoulder. Yeah, and a, like I saying it, you know, at the recreational level, it's attacking the second serve is probably going to be a much more common first strike than hurting somebody with your first serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could be done. Absolutely. Yeah, so you need to work on that. And I'm a big fan in the group settings when you can of having servers always serving to returners. You know, too often, and I've been guilty of this, too often you have kids all on one side hitting serves to targets, and then you go pick up balls, and then you'll start playing points. But you're missing out on an opportunity to work on returns. You know, it can be a little bit dangerous. You have to control the return so you're not firing it at a person straight ahead of you that's trying to serve. But it's important to hit a lot of serves with returners so you can see what it's doing to the returner. And then it's good to hit as many returns as you can in practice. And serve practice is a great time for another person to be having return practice. Yep. And like we talked about, you know, last week, every single point starts with a serve. Yep. So you want to get a lot of practice on that. And first strike returns is probably a higher priority for the vast majority of recreational players than even the first serve is. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Number two, point building or what we call neutral rally. We'll define that as if first strike is not possible, a point begins with ground strokes hit from a neutral position behind the baseline Specific patterns are played from this position with the goal of forcing a reply to three quarters court or shorter. Um, this makes me think of two things. Um, you've taught us about the backhand cage 
And then also you've taught us how if you can control the middle of the court, you will win the point more often than not. What do you mean by those? Well, uh, the backhand cage is just, a, you know, you, if you can make your opponent hit their weaker shot over and over again, and especially if you can run around your weaker shot, say your backhand, if you're talking right-handed or right-hander, and you can put your forehand into their backhand over and over again, you're going to give yourself a much better chance of winning the point. Yeah. And then, you know, in any game like tennis, the position of strength on the court is the middle. So if you can move your opponent out of the middle, they have to recover somewhere back toward the middle after each shot in order to still be in good position. So you, you want to control that. Now, the way that I've evolved my, my coaching when it comes to these neutral rallies, you want to call them, or point building. Uh, number one, I did some data gathering on error and winner rates when balls are struck from behind the baseline. And this was at a pretty high level, college tennis, even pro tennis. And the error rate is at least two to one. So twice as many errors as winners when both players are behind the baseline. So thinking you're going to hit a winning shot when you're behind the baseline is a bad call. You're not likely to do that. The pros rarely do it. You know, I mean, they do hit winners. Don't get me wrong. They happen, but they, the, the winners are half as likely as errors in that situation. So in these point building situations, what I've come to do is I, I teach what I call the happy accident. And what I want my players to do is to aim sort of center side. So, you know, sort of six to nine feet from the sidelines, you know, maybe halfway between the service line and the baseline and, and just roughly a fairly safe cross-court sort of shots over and over again. And when you look at shot distribution patterns in tennis, the reality is we don't control the ball very well. And I get a kick out of coaches that put cans or cones or things deep into the corners a foot or two from the lines and have kids aiming at those because all you're doing is training errors. You know, that is completely unrealistic. So what happens is if you aim fairly safely, there's going to be a scatter diagram where your shots are going to naturally spread around where you're aiming at. And half of the time the shot's going to go closer to the line than you intended mm -hmm. those are opportunities for you to hurt your opponent mm -hmm. now, you didn't intend it what's happened to me over the years is when i've tried to force the issue by intentionally moving my opponent around assuming that they're reasonably skilled uh i start to make too many errors mm -hmm. and if instead of doing that i just stick to my knitting and try to hit good quality shots not just pushing it but i go good quality shots for those fairly safe targets some of my shots are going to turn out a lot better than I intended, meaning I missed close to the line. And then my antenna get raised and I'm ready for a weak reply. It doesn't always come, but I'm ready for a weak reply. And if I clank one short into the middle, well, I'm going to get ready to defend because I haven't challenged my opponent very much. And sort of my neutral balls, yeah, they're neutral. And then I scatter it around and wait for the happy accidents that give me a chance to maybe get a short ball and attack. And I found that to be very good a good way to think about the game and a good way to play it rather than trying to move my opponent around being too creative because in my case, yeah, I start missing. Yeah. And that's some higher level tactics as a discussion, but if you're a beginner to the game, you know, we're talking about the wall, uh, you know, the way everyone grew up playing tennis back in the day. And you and I still think there's a ton of value to it hitting against the wall and just learning to center the ball on the strings right. and a controlled rally. I right. mean, you know, the late, great Henry Matheson grew up on the wall. I mean, you know, he, this is one of our players that tragically died last year that he died as the number one 16 year old in the state of Colorado. And he was born and raised on the FRA and he would put a flashlight up at Car Park in Longmont and just hit against the wall for hours before yeah. we all showed up to do the eight to 12 
you know, and just, and serve after serve after serve. But my point on that is the wall really developed him early, early on without me ever being there. And, and we know that that's a heck of a way to get started with the game, huh? Yeah. That's almost an episode in itself. I mean, right. I've, I've reached out. To, I mean, I, I read stories. I talk to people. I've never come across a person who's truly, you know, really, really good at tennis who didn't hit at the beginning, at least a lot against a wall. I mean, there's little pictures of Roger Federer with the wall he grew up hitting on. I mean, it's, it's just universal. Now that doesn't mean that that's sufficient. Obviously there's no way if all you're doing is hitting on a wall, you're ever going to be very good at tennis because there's no opponent, a lot of things missing, but you can develop that sense of the rebound and the sense of the racket, the control, where's the face, what does the face angle do? And so it's, I mean, that's, that's the place to start. I think. For Boy, is that, is that the truth? Almost every public park should have a wall somewhere. Yeah. Some of them do, but they should all be built with a wall. It's such a simple right. thing to yeah. have. And, and one of the problems with tennis is you have to have someone else to play with, you know, and obviously right. you need to practice and play against other people because that is the sport. But how can I, when I'm alone, I don't have any, anyone with me. Can I still do something that will help me get good at tennis? Well, yeah. I mean, just carrying a racket around with you, getting a feel for it. I used to hit volleys against the walls in my house, you know, hitting against the garage door, hitting at the park, you know, you just develop a feel for that implement which is very, very important. And yeah. I think most people skip it. They, you know, they just learn how to swing it. Like, yeah. Well, okay. That's, that's not going to be as good as learning how to actually sustain a rally against a wall. You don't have to be 30 feet away from the wall. I mean, I hit a lot of shots on a wall or 10, 15 feet from it. Yeah. Just getting a feel, feel yeah. for the racket and the ball contact. Okay. Let's move on. Number three, five tactical areas of tennis. Number three, capitalizing and attacking what we've called offense um, we'll define that as capitalizing on opportunities to attack by recognizing balls that could be taken early. Appropriate approach shot placement is used to force a weak reply. And in our game-based approach podcast episode, we talked about attack and defend, a great way to work on number three, huh? Absolutely. And, you know, that piece was written 20 or more years ago. And, and the author, Jeff Moore, he was a little old school. And when I first wrote, you know, pieces about this, I talked about the short ball and attacking and approaching and all that stuff too. But I mentioned last time, let's bring drop shots into the, into the equation too. Right. So there's different ways to attack. So, yeah. And then one of the questions, you know, is where do you hit the approach shot when you're attacking? And I've always been a fan of cornering people. You know, I want to get my opponent out of the middle so that I do the heavy lifting with that first shot from the midcourt. And then come forward and I say, sort of clean up the trash. You know, they try to pass me and I just block it away into the open court because I've cornered them. But there are people who do a lot of time, spend a lot of time going across the baseline, hitting, they're practiced at hitting from those corners and hitting passing shots. So there are situations where you're better off approaching up the middle. Mm -hmm. One of those things where you, know, you need experience and you need to learn, you know, well, some people struggle with that. So you want to have the ability to, to play even centered approach shots at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's certainly a reason why serve and volley tennis has gone away uh, to a degree with the power of the returns and racket technology and everything else. But I suppose it'll always be the case where you can still serve and look for the short ball. And if you don't Absolutely. have the ability to take a short ball in and finish, you know, that's something you've got to develop. Um, you know, I we call it a double edged sword, right? If I do not go big on the short ball, then sure, the guy hitting the passing shot has the advantage. But if I go big on that short ball and practice that and identify it, then I'm absolutely making the right play coming in and hopefully having a pretty easy volley. That's, that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? 
Yeah, and nowadays, you know, with the racket speeds and the polyester strings, the amount of spin that players can generate at higher levels, you definitely want to hurt the person more with the approach shot than you did back in the old wooden days. Back mm -hmm. in my day, if you knifed an approach shot and you got it nice and deep, you were in a pretty commanding position in the point. Mm -hmm. um, I tell I tell a story where I was practicing with a, a guy that was redshirting at a school I was coaching, volunteer coach, and the team was on the road and I was sitting with him and I was doing those old school approach shots against this guy. And he was just, I mean, my ears were hurting. He was breaking the ball and just whistling it past me. I, I was getting, I was getting nowhere with my old school slice deep approaches, but I had a couple that were short like Federer did to, to Roddick and to everyone else, this little three quarters approach shot. And he had trouble with that. And he said, yeah, yeah do more of that. I need to work on that. And the idea there was it was a short three-quarter court low ball that he had to step inside the baseline to pass me. Now you would think, well, that's got to be a problem because he's closer to you. But he couldn't hit it nearly as hard and get it to come down in the court. So that was actually a better approach shot against that guy, a modern player, than the old school deep approach shot was. Yeah. So yeah. that's something to consider too. Now that doesn't mean you know most people don't hit slice deep approach shots. They crush it and get the person on the run and really hurt them with that midcourt ball. But there is an option to eat drop shot it or even hit those little three-quarter shots and bring your opponent forward into awkward defensive position. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that also makes me think about how in our own tournament play and in watching juniors compete, some kids like a target and be wary, be wary of the person that hasn't ripped a single ball hard all match. But when you come in, they find the corners and rip great passing shots. I think right. that's true too. And that person should be that you, you got something else to think about when you come in against that person, or at least you better go really big to the corner or middle or something. But some people like a target, don't they? And that's, that's another podcast, but how about the pusher that pushes and loops until you come in and then they rip it low at your feet. And you know, that's a whole nother episode on how to beat the pusher. And uh, well, a lot of this has been, playing the pusher but you know that's another interesting consideration isn't it the person that loves that target up there oh yeah i mean if you've got somebody that's you know really steady but when you attack them they can pass you or lob you or they're really really steady but you give them a short ball and they can attack uh you're dealing with an awfully tough opponent mm -hmm. thankfully most people that are pushers they're pretty one-dimensional they really just stay back and they don't really they don't pass that well or they don't know, they never attack. I guess they're, they're more often to pass well than attack. But yeah. yeah, I mean, if they don't miss, plus they've got some way to thwart your attack or attack you if you give them a chance, well, good luck. I love it. I love it. Opponent. Yeah, I love it. Okay, number four, finishing or what we've called finishing shots defined as using different patterns to finish the point at the net with a volley or overhead. Now, here's where the game has evolved. Huh? I remember in my day in juniors being told, not to swing on the volley. And now we we're swinging all the time. You and I try to get kids to swing more. Um, it's gotta be the right ball, but um, finishing shot. Let's talk about that. Yeah. If you get a floater in the middle of the court. Yeah. I mean, are you better off using your, your normal ground stroke swing to hit a hard topspin ball from there? Or are you better off going old school and hitting an underspin shot? Well, I mean, it depends on your skill set for sure, but, you know, why would, you know, an attacking ball hit with underspin is probably going to be less successful, less pace than an attacking ball hit with overspin. So you do see a lot more people hitting swinging midcourt volleys. You don't see so many swinging volleys on, you know, regular passing shots at the net. You don't have enough time to make that big swing. Yeah. Yeah. But the finishing concept, that's where I like to, you know, I like that approach shot, the first shot to corner someone so that the finishing shot isn't so difficult. 
you've got a lot of court to finish into. And that's where you know, people that hit it hard passing shots, you know, you, when you come to the net, you're depriving yourself of time, big time on their passing shot. The least amount of time you have in tennis is between a well-struck passing shot and your volley. But the advantage you get is you get a lot more angle that you can hit into. Mm-hmm. So you want to, if you can corner a person who hits hard paced passing shots, you should be able to volley that next ball into the open court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and I have talked a little bit about kind of the psychology of having a passing shot ripped by you. It's, it's frustrating, you know, uh, spectators and tennis are incorrectly, you know, taught. There's a standard that you'd never cheer a miss. Uh, I say incorrectly because, you know, tennis is not something that a lot of people get into. So anything to make it more popular and gain more of a crowd. Right. But um, anyways, you're, you're taught to be polite, sit in your hands and everyone's wearing white shorts and a white shirt out there. But the reality is, is if a kid rips a passing shot, there's a huge cheer, there's a fist pump and a let's go and a come on and it's deflating to the person that attacks. But I've literally charted matches before where a kid will have that moment where they come in, they do everything right. And the kid hits a great pass against them. And then they don't come in a single other time. But I tell them after the match, they won eight out of 10 points at the net. All they remembered was the dramatic pass when the crowd got excited, but they actually won 80% of their chances at the net. And that's a heck of a percentage, isn't it? Um, Oh yeah. (laughs) But boy, that sticks with you when, you know, when someone hits a great pass, you may forget that you won the last four chances at the net, but they hit a great pass and they do a huge let's go and a fist pump and then you're not coming back in. That's a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple things there. Yeah, that mindset that you have to win every point or have a play on every ball, that's not going to work when you come to the net. You know, if you're back at the baseline, you know, you're kind of keeping the action in front of you. You have enough time. You feel like you have a play on every shot. Whereas when you come forward, you know, people are going to be able to hit it over you and around you a certain amount of the time. It's just a matter of, does the math work out? What percentage, like you said, am I winning? And obviously 80%, it's a little disappointing that, that someone wouldn't notice 80%. One of the problems in tennis is that, you know, 52, 48, you know, percent, you know, winning that, that wins you almost every match you play. And it's very difficult in the context of competition to notice that, well, I'm winning 60, 40 of these points, but that's a blowout. So, you know, if you win 60% of the points when you come to the net, that's extremely good. Yeah. That's not that easy to detect when you're playing. Yeah. We want kids to have the confidence and competence to aggressively close that net. And that's where like Steamboat Skyball comes in that we talked about the other day. I always tell kids, you know, I don't want you to hope that the person misses the passing shot when you come in. I want you to want that volley, look for that volley. Hopefully you win it on the transition shot but want that volley, don't hope for the miss. And I think sometimes you have to forget about the lob and close hard and get in there and hit the volley if it comes back. You know, and, and I think that's a mistake kids make. They hang out around the T and the service line, the proverbial zone three, no man's land, and they're giving too much respect to the lob and they're not aggressively closing that net in that situation. Yeah, that and that's going to depend on the opponent. Some, some people, I think most kids don't lob. I mean, they... They just right. like to rip it. Right. If you, if you if you tried to close the net tight against me, you were going to be very disappointed because you're <laughs> going to lose every point. Because yeah. my first my first choice after you've made a first volley coming in or something like that was always the lob. I was mm. going to push you out of there, see what you can do. <laughs> so you'd have you'd have been punished badly against Zero. me for doing that. But but a lot of kids they don't. They never lob. Yeah. 
but you don't, you know, the doubles positioning is a little different because you have somebody behind you usually. So if it goes over you, it's just, they, they get it. Whereas in singles, obviously you don't, but yeah, you want to pay attention to the tendencies of your opponent. You know, if they tend to never lob, I mean, get close to the net as long as your reaction time can handle it. I mean, that's one of the nice things about being close to the net is it does reduce your reaction time, but you don't have to hit a very good volley if you're right on top of the net. And the, and the shanks go in, right? And the shanks go yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> the shanks go in. Yeah, I mean, I do that in doubles. I mean, that that's what transformed me from sort of a middle-aged crappy doubles player to a middle-aged pretty darn good doubles player again because I was trying to volley from where I volleyed when I was 20 years old. And my tracking skills weren't as good. My eye-hand coordination wasn't as good. My movement wasn't as good. I was really just a pigeon. I wasn't really doing anything. If I hit a volley, it wasn't that good. And I didn't really get to many balls because I had too far to travel to pick them off. But when I started positioning myself right on top of the net, all of a sudden I was a force. And my volleys were crappy, but they were winners. Yeah, I love and it. A little different in singles. You know, yeah. In singles, you need, to, you need to respect the lob a little bit more. But only if they do it. Yeah. If they don't do it, don't respect it. So last one, number five, uh, tactical areas of tennis. Number five, defense. Um, playing a series of shots to make the transition from defense to neutral to offense. And I think of Rafael Nadal when I when I hear that. You know, people think he hits hard, but in reality, he's at like 3,500 RPMs of spin on the forehand compared to like a 1,500 RPMs uh, with like a Federer forehand. I mean, he's arguably the greatest defensive player that ever lived, huh? He's a... He can attack, but there's so much loopy spin. He plays pretty solid defense, too. Oh, yeah. There's no great player that doesn't play pretty darn good defense anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. Federer, unbelievable defender. Djokovic, obviously, puts up the wall. Unbelievable defender. Nadal, great defender. I think that, you know, Nadal, a lot of these modern players, they skip that neutral step. <laughs> In that piece, Jeff said you want to go from defense to neutral to offense. Those guys go from defense to offense. Right. And Nadal, I mean, the thing that I think stuck out about Nadal when he first came on the scene was his ability to hit winners from the flower pots. You know, he just was unbelievable. The racket speed and ball speed and spin that he had, you would have that guy in a position where you would think, there's no way I can lose this point. And he whistles some ball that he hooks around the you know, outside the, the alley in. It's unreal. It's unreal. So, yeah, he's able to take a defensive position and outright win the point from there, which was back in the old days, that didn't happen. Yeah. It happens now, and he's not the only one anymore. I mean, yeah. I mean look at Sitsipas defend. These people are unbelievable defenders. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why it's important, you know, when we do the attack and defend games, when you play finish game where you, you hurt the person with that feed, that you get players, you know, comfortable being in a defensive situation. And they need to learn the racket skills to chip a ball low. I mean, if you're in trouble and you have the old school skill of slicing a ball back low, very few people can hurt you. Yeah. I mean, the looping ball to recover is a great, a great play. But I, I'll tell you this. I was working with a pretty high level junior around here. And I, he, was, he was one of these kids, like you had mentioned last week, that goes too big when he's in trouble. And I said, you know, you're just rolling the dice there. You're losing too many points. You need to, you know, you need to loop this ball by yourself more time. And I said, unfortunately, there's probably an expiration date on this because you're going to find guys that you're going to do that, and they're just going to step up and crack it with the swing and volley out of the midcourt, and you're going to have to come up with something else. But I said, that's a way to get yourself back into the point. And, and we worked on that a little bit. And the very next tournament I watched him play, sure enough, he's in trouble. He loops a ball up, and his opponent steps into the midcourt and cracks a winner off. <laughs> I was like, well, there you go. 
That's piece of advice lasted a week. Yeah, right. So you have to have multiple ways to defend. And, you know, looping the ball, lobbing the ball will work against a lot of people. But you also want to be able to chip it low and slice. You know, when people attack you, if you can dip the ball down below the net and make them volley up, they're going to have a big problem on their hands on the next ball. Yeah, yeah. So well, it's, a, it's a skill set that takes a lot of work and a yeah. lot of practice. Yeah. You and I have admittedly evolved, so to speak, and changed as coaches and are trying to tell kids different things now than maybe we did years and years ago. And, you know, I think it's hopefully helping. Um, right. With the other day I was in, we were in the group playing finish game. We touched on the other day and, uh, you know, kid goes way out wide on a forehand. He's in huge trouble and just tries to destroy his forehand from well off the court out wide, straight down the line an inch over the net. And the other guy wasn't even at the net. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, it would just, and I just said that shot, you know, didn't make sense. Uh, you know, to me, why did you hit that? And uh, he said, well, I panicked. I mean, he admitted that he panicked. And I said, well, I think a better option in that case is you were there. Like you were there. Let's, I think a better option would go cross court with some neck clearance and allow yourself time to recover and, and get back in the point. You might be surprised what happens right there. Absolutely. And, you know, you're trying to get time, distance and space back on your side. And he was like, Oh, that makes a ton of sense. He mm -hmm. was like, I don't know why I ripped that one. I was a hard shot came to me. So I hit a hard shot back. He said, right. So, you know, and, and it was like almost a panic moment admittedly that, you know, he goes down the line there instead of a uh, cross court with neck clearance. And, you know, I just said, maybe if, you know, maybe if um, your opponent over there had come into the net, you know, loopy cross court might not have worked and I could see going more aggressive, but I think that's the play there to get time and space and distance back on your side. And it made sense to him. Right. And now if your opponent is unbelievably skilled, like the opponents playing Rafael Nadal, well, it makes sense for Rafael Nadal from the flower pot to roll the dice <laughs> yeah, right? Right. because he knows he's playing against somebody that if he just tries to buy himself more time, he's going to lose. Yeah. So he doesn't do that. He does not take your advice, my advice in that situation. But you got to know who you're playing. And and most people are going to be playing people that if you give them another chance to miss, they will take it. Yeah. So if you're in trouble, get the ball back. Get the ball to your opponent. I can't tell you, as we've practiced these finishing drills for these kids, learning how to come to the net, close points out, I can't tell you how many points these kids, they've snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. They play point after point after point where they come to the net and they butcher that that simple, what I think is a simple finishing shot. Yeah. And they just need more reps on it, more recognize it more, learn simple techniques for tapping balls away, trying to not to make it too difficult. But, I mean, really, against most kids around here anyway, if you're in trouble, give them the ball. Yeah. Just give them the ball. And, and you might win half of the points. Yeah. I mean, I remember feeding attack and defend games way back in the day with with you know high school girls in a group that I had, and they would you would give them a short ball and they'd miss it. You give them a short ball and they'd miss it, and this went on for ten minutes. And I said, "Wow, we're you know we're trying to tell you that the way to win at this game is to keep the ball deep and keep the person back." But what I'm seeing is every time you have a short ball, you come in and you miss it. That appears to be the best way to play against you. <laughs> and who would have thought, right? Right. But it's true. I mean, I. I did an experiment several years ago where I had seen a fairly high level D3 player that just looked to me like he just put the ball to T. All he did is just roll balls to the T and he was very successful. So I came back and I started doing that. And lo and behold, I was successful doing that. Huh. I couldn't believe it. Because mm -hmm. that's a circle of death. You will not win doing that. But I was. It was weird. <laughs> Why was I winning? Well, A, I was never missing. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I was aiming for the T. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I'm not I'm not the best tennis player in the world, but I can hit the T. You're avoiding the <laughs> parameters of the court. 
Yeah. I was it, taking everything away. I was taking the net. I was hitting it decently high over the net. And I was just, I mean, I was just putting the ball in play. And what would happen was my, my opponents who were fairly skilled, they would come in and they would try approach shots, big shots, and they would miss them. Not always, but enough that I would win. It was, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so you just never know, you know, people, people lack that skill sometimes to, I mean, it was a lot of people of different skills. It was, it was shocking. So you just have to have an open mind about, you know, don't, don't think every ball's got to be hit three feet from the baseline. Cause I proved, and then other guy proved hitting the T can be successful. Yeah. It, it, it's a, you know, it's a very fascinating game and it's a game between two people, you and the other person. And it's how your skill set fits theirs. And what can you do that gives them trouble? Stay, stay alert to things. And you might find that just hitting the ball to T you yeah. win. Well, I, we can leave it with that. I think the folks will like this one. We would love, you know, more feedback so far. It's been positive. We'd love ideas for future episodes, you know, for the record, this is full length episode number three. And we have two others out there on uh, Spotify and we have each of coach BOB and I have each done one quick hit. Um, his touched on how tactics can change quickly and obsessing about or sorry, technique, how techniques can change quickly and obsessing about technique is a tough road. Mine was on, you know, making shots and not hitting too hard, but um, check them out and uh, we can leave this one here. And I think this will help people know what we do in the FRA, why we think it works and, but question it and question us because we just discussed how there's a lot of ways to play this game, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're learning with you. Yep. So we'll sign off and uh, we'll, we'll catch you guys next week. See ya. See ya.